Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 22, being recorded on Thursday, April 14th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. Good evening. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It was a crazy week in e-commerce. We had essentially three concurrent events that were pretty impactful. First of all, you had Facebook F8, or Fate, as they say, uh, and then we had Channel Advisor Catalyst in Las Vegas, and then also Magento Imagine was in Las Vegas as well. This was uh, the first year I was not able to make Catalyst, but you were there, and I look forward to hearing what you have to say about it. Yeah, uh, but before we get to that, did you get a chance to follow the news from Fate? I did. I, I unfortunately was not able to do the live stream, but I watched. Um, it was nice. Last year I tried this, and they weren't available after they live streamed, but this year they were cached, so I was able to watch them kind of off-cycle. Um and it was a little anticlimactic because a lot of the news that came out, you and I had already talked about. So the Jason and Scott show had really scooped pretty much the whole show. Um, the big one was, uh, you know, the the launch of a, an SDK and and a beta of Facebook Messenger with bots in it. Um, and what was really interesting is they had uh, the ability for a lot of the press to come and play with the bots. And they had something like 22 launch partners. And about half of those are, are kind of e-commerce-y retail t- types of brands like 1-800-Flowers, Staples, H&M. And I think the you know what, what was interesting is most of the press and the hands-on experiences came out pretty negative. Where you know what, what people found was interacting with these bots was kind of mundane and tedious compared to other ways of, of shopping online. The one example I saw over and over again was 1-800-Flowers, where you would kind of chat with a bot and say, I want some flowers. And it would say, what's the occasion? And we just say, Mother's Day. And it would say, here's four uh, items. You know, Say more if you want more. And you would say more. And then you would pick the item. And then it would say, what's the delivery date? And you would say that. And it just felt very, you know, to the, the folks that were writing about it, it felt very tedious and, and like it took... 30 minutes to to do this, which could have taken like maybe two minutes if they'd done it online. So, and then some of the other apps that are um, not in e-commerce, um, there's one, uh, I think it's called Poncho. Uh, and, you know, it's supposed to be this interactive thing you talk to and it, it kind of, if you don't interact with it exactly the right way, it kind of, it doesn't have any semantic processing and it just kind of falls apart. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of excitement around it, this new platform, but a lot of these initial experiences are, were not, uh, you know, enthralling. Yeah, that's my sense too. They they had a really good news cycle, so it got widely covered. And in fact, I think the Today Show did a segment on this new way of shopping this morning. So I'm sure they accomplished their goal. But to your point, the early experiences are all kind of rough around the edges. And so, you know, if someone did a deep dive and evaluated the experiences, they were they were generally pretty negative, which I, I think is a shame because I do think the platform has a lot of potential. And I, I don't think anyone's had a chance to build any any great experiences with it yet. The funniest article I saw, though, is there, uh, the editor of Search Engine Land is this really smart guy, Danny, Danny Sullivan, and uh, he used the, the 1-800-Flowers chatbot to send a bouquet of flowers to my, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was funny. I saw that. It was great. The, um, 
Outside of kind of the e-commerce news, uh, everyone that listens to the show knows that you and I are big augmented reality, virtual reality geeks. Uh, and uh, even though we're both depressed that our Oculus Rifts have been delayed by a number of weeks, they did have some a couple of interesting items. Uh, first of all, the um, to create the content for VR is very, very expensive. The cameras kind of started at $300,000. Uh, and even now, Google has one that takes a, a bunch of GoPros and, and kind of syncs them together. But even that one is, is something like $10,000. Um, they open sourced, Facebook open sourced a 360 degree camera that has a price point that is, is you know, kind of around $1,000 is my understanding, which is pretty interesting. So you're starting to see that. You know, that, that's a pretty big shift for over five years from 300K to kind of $1,000. So, so that was interesting, and hopefully that'll lead to an explosion of content out there. Um, then the other one that was pretty uh, fascinating was, and, and this is maybe hard for folks to envision, but I'll, I'll do my best shot, and we'll have a link in the, the notes. Um, so what they did is they had a virtual world, and someone was at F8, which I think was held um, – in San Jose or San Bruno, somewhere kind of you know, not at Facebook headquarters. Then uh, the person on stage pulled in a person from the Facebook headquarters that was not there on stage. So two people, you know, kind of like doing a WebEx in VR, which is which is itself a little mind blowing. Um, so the first thing that was interesting is they also announced that they have they're going to have these uh, scan stations across the country where you can go in and do a 360 degree scan of your head, and then it will create a perfect avatar for you. So both these guys had perfect avatars done with that system, which was pretty neat. So then what was cool is they're in this virtual space, and they say, "Hey, let's go to Paris." And they went they went to a city I can't remember what it was, but let's say it's Paris. Then they were there on the Seine, uh, and then they started to kind of just draw virtual. Um, like ties for themselves and stuff. And then the guy whips out a, a, a selfie stick and all this is happening in this virtual world. And they take a selfie of themselves, you know, in physically disparate places in the real world, but in the quote unquote matrix, they're both there. They take a selfie and post it on Facebook. So it was, it was pretty interesting to kind of think of, you know, what, what could this do for, um, you know, just kind of bring it back to the show, social shopping. So, you know, you could imagine, Let's say my daughter and one of her friends goes off to college. They could they could kind of go shopping together or something, uh, or we could do a podcast together. You know, even though you and I are in disparate places, we could have or we could even bring a guest in or something like that. So it's going to be really interesting. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Second Life, how you had like a little nuggets of this, but then it was just like fall apart because it was just kind of so tedious. Uh, this was pretty interesting and pretty engaging. So I encourage everyone to take a look at it. It's kind of a three to five year out thing you have to kind of use your imagination but but it was pretty cool yeah it sounds really cool if it follows the pattern of second life it it won't be successful until they give everyone weapons yeah yeah and you can make some kind of money by mining the you know the the coins out of the place there you go (laughs) so so that was the big things i saw in um f8 and uh as i wasn't able to make catalyst this year and you did make it what were some of the highlights that you saw there yeah, well, not to give you too much credit, but it really is a good show. It's it's an excellent opportunity to get up to speed on the latest in marketplaces. And because marketplaces are such a integral part of international expansion, I also found uh, that there was a lot of great content in uh, helping businesses put together their international expansion plans. And so uh, some of the stuff that stuck out at me this year, first of all, you guys launched a couple new products that I thought were pretty interesting. Uh, you have this new product called Channel Advisor Product Intelligence. And this is a product that scrapes 
retailer sites and gathers intelligence and metrics about your product's digital shelf, how many reviews it has and how many images it has versus your competition and and those sorts of things. And that's a really useful tool in the space right now as branded manufacturers are are all making the transition to digital shopper marketing. Um, there's a lot of metrics and tools that we used in the brick and mortar world that don't exist in the digital world. And so uh, this feels like it's filling in one of those gaps to help give brand managers better insight into how their their products are doing on the digital shelf. So uh, I'll be looking forward to that. I, uh, as soon as the podcast over, I'll hit you up for my free trial account for that. The other thing is, you know, you you have a where to buy feature and uh, you greatly expanded that at the show. So now you, in addition to, you know, a brand being able to have a button that says, where you, where can you get this? And seeing, you know, getting links to the product detail pages on all the retailers that sell it, it can now tell you which stores near you have that in stock, which in the omni-channel world is a, you know, critical feature for, for most brands that, you know, have traffic coming to their site and they want to... Uh, have a strong call to action to buy those goods. So, so uh, two. I assume you had nothing to do with both of those, um, but those were two two smart products that that will probably resonate with some of my clients. I also caught the keynote the first day, and uh, there there was a bunch of interesting updates about the state of marketplaces, and uh, uh, I thought a pretty interesting bold prediction that Amazon's uh, gross merchandising value will surpass Walmart's this year if you take grocery out of Walmart's revenue. Yeah, and um, what you have to do is you have to kind of unpack Amazon and take the 1P and the 3P out, gross up the 3P to be apples to apples GMV. And uh, then when you take grocery out of Walmart, as you know, it's it's a little over 50% and where a lot of the growth is coming at Walmart. And when you do that, the lines look like they'll cross this year. So it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, this feels like a crazy inflection year for Walmart. You know, earlier this month they were passed by Alibaba for gross merchandising value. They just had their first quarter uh without growth in their 25-year history, and then if they do get passed by Amazon, that will definitely be a a major milestone that I imagine folks at, at Walmart are busily trying to address. Some keynotes from some of the key vendors there. So Hal Lawton, who used to run Home Depot, is now at uh, eBay and was giving a presentation about their future roadmap. And I think an exciting piece of news to all the eBay sellers is that eBay is returning to TV this year, which is interesting. We had some conversations last week about whether they might be tuning down their investment in uh, Google PLAs. And certainly if they're investing in TV, like you could imagine that they're shifting some digital dollars to TV. Hal also mentioned that the format the TV ads are going to take is seasonal marketing campaigns, which is a super traditional technique in retail. Most retailers' marketing and promotions are what we call tent poles, where you sort of go from holiday to holiday to holiday. And apparently that's not something eBay has historically done. And so feels like you know eBay is trying to act a little bit more like a, a retailer, which is probably smart. They announced a Facebook integration, you know, and I think they uh, talked a little bit ab- about their migration to structured data. We've talked about on, that on the show and, and how it probably hasn't been fast enough, but you definitely get the impression that at least Hal is acutely aware of why it's super important. And, you know, he talked about some of the 
the internal trials and tribulations of not having a structured marketplace and uh, how they're very committed to getting there. So, so, uh, how's a smart guy? Um, it'll be interesting to see how effective he can be in uh, transforming eBay. You also had the neat from Google and he had, um, some stuff that was pretty interesting to me. Uh, he's responsible for amongst other things, the purchases on Google program, which is the Google's buy now button. And there are a number of test manufacturers that, that have the button live right now. And I know uh, some of those are channel advisor content clients that you help enable, but it sounds like there's about 25 merchants on the system right now, which is actually more than I realized. And he was showing examples of some of the breadth. And what I didn't really realize is the buy experience for each of those merchants is more customized for each merchant than I was aware of. And so different merchants do have different flows. And one super important feature that I'm ashamed I didn't know about is um, the flows do allow you to introduce more than one product. So, you know, if you think of a buy button on a PLA, a PLA is for one product. So, you know, you click buy on that, you get that one product. For a lot of retailers, that's a big problem because the only way to make that product profitable is to sell it with other products, right? Like you want to sell the case and the charger with the iPhone, for example. Um, the iPhone alone won't make you any money. And uh, it sounds like that's the kind of experience they're trying to architect through purchases on Google is to enable those sort of upsells and to have a little mini catalog behind that buy button, which is more challenging for Google and interesting. And I sort of appreciated the humility of it. He was very overt. They're like, hey, I know we've been giving retailers all this advice from the ivory tower for the last 10 years on how they should be crafting their experiences and running their businesses. And now for the first time, we're the ones trying to sell stuff. And it's way harder and more humbling than we thought, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which I I thought was nice. Um, And then my last big takeaway from Catalyst was about Walmart and their renewed emphasis on the marketplace. So, you know, Walmart has had a marketplace for a while. I know a lot of people that are aggressive marketplace sellers sell on the Walmart marketplace, but in general, you tend to hear a lot of complaints that it's less reliable, that there's more challenges with product quality and images not showing up, and that there are strict caps on how many products you're even allowed to sell through the marketplace. And in general... You talk to sophisticated marketplace sellers, and they're they're not super impressed with the the feature set in the execution of the marketplace. But it seems like Walmart's making a, a major effort to address a lot of those issues. It sounds like you guys have a full integration with them, so all the channel advisor sellers can now readily get products onto the Walmart marketplace. And I heard from at least a couple sellers that felt like they believe that Walmart will eventually surpass uh, eBay for them as their number two marketplace behind Amazon. Cool. Great. That's a, that's an awesome summary. The, did I screw anything up? No, you did. You did. uh, I wasn't there. So you did an awesome job as best I know the, the, some of the macro themes that that we talked about on the show, but that at channel advisor, we've been investing in the, the brands uh, going direct, you know, I, I saw some stats that something like about a third of the attendees this year were branded manufacturers. That's up from zero, you know, literally 
two years ago. So, so that's been interesting. And, and we see that at internet retailer and all the shows are, are just kind of, you know, the brands are awake. They're really interested in going direct to consumer or at least influencing the path much more in e-commerce. So, so it's interesting to see that. Um, did you, did you experience that as you talked to attendees? Did you see a lot of branded manufacturers? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, um, Johnson and Johnson was one of the presenters and that, and that was, that session was packed. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, was talking about the digital shelf and the, your, your new product introductions, you know, the two I highlighted are primarily targeted at a brand. So it felt like you saw a lot of brand names on badges and it felt like there was a lot of content for brands. And certainly that mirrors my own experience from, from our commerce practice at Razorfish that they're early in their migration to digital maturity. And, and so there's a lot of activity in that space right now. Yeah. And on Walmart, it is interesting. Some of those kind of existing sellers are, are through an older channel visor integration. Um, and, you know, we do see that it, they can resonate and it can be a very large channel for them. So a lot of people count Walmart out, but when you look at the traffic there and, and the, the scale of Walmart, I, I think they've, you know, my take is they've been really held back by selection. Uh, and I think this new renewed focus on marketplace is exciting to see a retailer other than Amazon um, you know, really pick up the marketplace baton and run with it. And I, they seem pretty serious about it. At the same time, you have folks like Best Buy that tried marketplaces. They couldn't really get their heads around it, and um, you know they're they're shuttering theirs. So uh, I, I think Walmart will be successful. It seems to have very you know up and down the organization support, which is important, and understanding a lot of these folks. They really don't understand the the traditional retailers have a tough time with this whole, okay, we're going to sell this GMV and we're only going to make 10% of it. Well, we're, we'll never make enough revenue from this for it to move the needle. Uh, and, you know, certainly that that's one way to look at it, but that revenue is pure profit. And if you actually kind of follow it through, it, it's, it can be, I believe it is the most profitable part of Amazon. And, and I think as these guys focus, it's a better consumer experience if you manage it right. And it can be quite profitable. So uh, be interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye here on the show, what's going on with that new Walmart marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. So that was mostly my takeaways from Catalyst. You know, there was another show in town. I didn't make it over to it, but the Magento Imagine conference was going on. Did you follow any of the news from that show? I did. Yeah, I followed it pretty closely because we have a ton of joint customers with the folks at Magento. It's also an interesting time for Magento, just to refresh everyone. They've they split from eBay. So uh, they were a startup, they were acquired by eBay. Uh, uh, and then eBay uh, kind of sloughed them off along with GSI and to kind of split them off into eBay Enterprise when they did the PayPal split. Um, and then now they've been even further fractured into their own effective little business um, that's that was bought and funded by private equity. So so a good kind of, I would say a good 25% of the comments were, were were pretty incendiary in a way. They were kind of like, you know, we're free of all the distractions of eBay and all that mess. And there, there's a lot of tone around that that just felt like, you know, they were telling their customers, look, for the last 18 months, we've been dealing with a bunch of political crap and now it's done and we're going to really get moving here. So, so it's, you know, interesting choice of messaging there. <laughs> the shackles are off. Yeah. Uh, but it, it really kind of, you know, 
it'll it'll be interesting because now they're definitely kind of put themselves in the spotlight and said this is the stuff we're going to do. I thought the most interesting thing from a platform perspective is we saw this wave probably five to seven years ago where Magento was was super popular. And what we found is a lot of SMBs were drawn to it because it was quote-unquote free, being open source. Well, free is not always free, as you know. And what, what happened is then uh, you know, a good three or four late years later, we, we saw all these Magento refugees. And what was happening was it sounded free, but they had to go get a host, a developer, and a designer, and if you're an SMB, that's a you know that's like a multi million dollar project that requires a project manager and someone with pretty good technical chops. And most most of these retailers were not able to do that while running their business, um, you know, because it's just not their forte. Uh, it's hard to be a great kind of SMB online retailer and manage you know this project at the same time. So what we saw is a lot of folks have left Magento for the hosted companies out there, specifically Shopify, Big Commerce, etc. And um, so uh, to counteract that, when they were part of eBay, they came out with Magento Go, which was kind of a, a very small SMB-oriented kind of version of a hosted Magento. It got absolutely no traction. Well, this show, they announced uh, that they're taking the big version of Magento, which is called Magento Enterprise, and they're going to come out with a cloud edition. So I thought that was really interesting is that the new team is really kind of starting to address this shortcoming. Uh, and at least now you have a host kind of baked in that's been – they manage it. So it takes one of those legs of complexity out of that equation. Um, the other thing I thought was just totally fascinating was it runs on Amazon Web Services, which is kind of you know super ironic that you know you're – you're going to be running on that on Amazon's infrastructure. It's a good choice, but it's just always kind of funny that um, Amazon has become so horizontal that it's hard to escape them. Uh, a couple other quick tidbits. We hit on this a little bit uh, last year. So their big new last last episode, their, their big version now is 2.0, and they announced Magento Marketplaces, which is their, their next attempt at an app store. And they admitted pretty freely that the previous app store, which was called Magento Connect, uh, it was kind of died from its own success. It had 8,000 extensions. They were all over the place. They were spamming Magento users. They didn't work well together. It was total calamity. And, and you may have some insights on this because you're you're, uh, you're more focused on the platforms. But it was interesting to hear them kind of go through a little, little self um, mea culpa about that. So this new one is going to be uh, curated, have many fewer selections, and, you know, this is a bit controversial. One of the ways they're going to kind of limit the selections is by having a very high pay bar on this. And they didn't go into specifics, but I got the sense it felt like 30% rev share, you know, buying yourself in through sponsorship kind of a thing. So I've got to imagine that if I, you know, these extension developers, um, you know, if you had some of these free ones or the ones that weren't very lucrative, it's going to be a really kind of tough slog here. Uh, and then the last thing that I thought was pretty interesting was, uh, and, and this was kind of kind of tied in that messaging of being free from the shackles of eBay. Uh, they're now committed to quarterly releases, and they talked about a 2.1 coming out, uh, and then 2.2 and 2.3. Um, that's exciting, but the the thing I wanted to kind of you know get your thoughts on is that's also uh, I don't know if everyone wants quarterly releases because you know uh, a number one uh, they didn't specifically say they're not going to do it during Q4, which I thought was weird, and then number two that that feels like a pretty aggressive pace for people on a platform where you know you you want to hop off that release bandwagon for twelve to eighteen months and suddenly you're a good five to six releases behind that that's gonna that just felt unusual to me um, but i I wasn't exactly sure but I, so those are some of the things that I saw and love to hear your thoughts on them 
I think you hit it. AWS is a controversial choice because to your point, it's an excellent product from a, a features and price standpoint. It's a perfect selection. But since everyone that uses Magento is by definition a, a reseller, a retailer of some kind or a B2B reseller, there are a lot of those companies that don't like giving their money to Amazon. And so, you know, even amongst my enterprise clients, there very often is an anti-Amazon bias. And so you see like uh, Rackspace and CenturyLink and Microsoft Azure get a lot of business where Amazon might have been the best choice, but other retailers just don't want to, to be on the Amazon platform. So a little controversial in that regard, or at least surprising that they didn't offer two flavors or or something like that. The marketplace is their double-edged sword. It, it was one of the strengths of the platform, and it was the Wild West. So I think you know they're smart to curate it and have higher standards. But those new pay bars are going to be really interesting because the word is that people have been really slow to migrate to 2.0, largely because they're afraid of breaking all of the marketplace extensions that they're dependent on. And if, if they're now making it much harder for all of those those same extensions to migrate, like they may be inadvertently forking a bunch of their customers to stay on the 1.0 platform. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. And then the quarterly releases, like part of me thinks, you know, they had such a hard time releasing 2.0. Like again, 2.0 was announced before the eBay acquisition and didn't really happen until after they spun out from eBay. So didn't happen the entire time eBay owned them. And, you know, I get that they now want to show they can be more agile and faster. But to your point, Magento is not a SaaS solution. It's a it's an on-prem solution that's owned by the the retailer, and the overwhelming majority of retailers customize it, right? Like one of the benefits of it being open source is you get the source code, and people customize it. And once you customize it, it becomes very arduous to apply those releases because you have to like regression test all of your customizations against the new releases and all those sorts of things. So I'm with you. If they were a SaaS platform, I'd say quarterly releases make perfect sense and maybe they should even have more frequent ones. Um, but I'm not sure that's going to be a huge selling point. I'm not sure clients that are on the platform are going to want to spend a bunch of money to go through all the labor of upgrading every quarter. Maybe it's a bit of a Trojan horse strategy that if they release enough fast enough, people will be like, okay, we got to move to the SaaS version or they won't extend it the way they're doing now. So it's a, you know, rapid release schedules are a disincentive for, for both of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to follow. I absolutely think they went into the eBay acquisition with the most momentum in the platform space. They were killing it in the the small business side. And a bunch of us were looking at them and evaluating whether it could move up market to some of our more enterprise clients. Um, and, you know, coming out of the acquisition, I feel like they've lost a ton of momentum to the the SaaS platforms and and Shopify in particular. So it'll be interesting now that the the eBay shackles are off if they can regain that momentum. Absolutely. That felt like all the conference news from last week, which was a lot. Did you get to follow any of the other big news in the industry this week? Yeah, I had a couple quick things just to kind of throw out there. Uh, you know, everyone that follows the show knows that we are big space geeks. So there's been an interesting kind of battle going on between Elon Musk, uh, founder of PayPal, and then now also Tesla and SpaceX, and then Jeff Bezos, who has his space company, Blue Origin. Blue Origin was able to um, send a rocket into subspace and landed on the ground. And then for the first time after five tries, SpaceX was able to bring the Falcon 9 Stage 1 rocket and landed on a uh, robot-controlled 
platform in the water. Uh, it's interesting. The the reason why this is important is it uses a lot less fuel. So if you if you uh, look at the way these the trajectory windows tend to be over the oceans and it takes a lot more fuel to bring the stage one rocket back to land. So if you can do it on water, it actually not only, um, you know, it is uh, safer and and whatnot. It's a lot less expensive because you're using a lot less fuel. So learned a little bit there. Uh, So encourage everyone to watch that. The other thing that's pretty exciting is we talk a lot about the Amazon Echo on the show. And this week, uh, last week, I got the tap. And just to remind everyone, here's there's now a family of Echoes. So you have uh, the original Echo, which is, you know, call it a six-inch speaker with uh, always on. And it has a very good speaker quality to it. And that's $180. And it has the voice recognition. And then they had another little portable one that's not always on, uses a lot less electricity, and it's battery-operated called the TAP, and that's $130. Uh, and then now I just received uh, the DOT, which is the $90 one. And the way it works is it's about two inches. I have it here, and I think I'm one of the first people to get one because you had to. it was pretty complicated how you had to order it. You had to have your Echo all wired to your Amazon account, and then you had to run up the day they announced it and and talk to your Echo to order it. Um, so what's interesting about this one is it's about two inches tall and it's a lot lower price point. So it's only $90. So it's half price versus the Echo, but it's maybe an eighth the size. So I don't know how the economics work there. So, but um, what's interesting is it has, it does have its own speaker. It's not nearly as high quality as the Echo, uh, but it does, it can Bluetooth to a speaker system or you can hardwire it to a speaker system. So if you already have a portable speaker system, a boombox from the 80s, or uh, another interesting thing, and I haven't done this, but if you have an AV system in your house, like a Sonos or something, now you can power that through uh, Alexa, which is pretty cool. So what I want to do on the show here is, uh, this is very risky, uh, is I want to do a live demo of this, and so people can hear the sound quality. So let's see, I'll try this. Alexa, knock, knock. Knock, knock. Who's there? Isabel. Isabel who? Isabel not working? I rang four times before I started knocking. There you go. A little humor from uh, Alexa. Did you hear that, Jason? I absolutely did. Uh, couldn't you hear how loudly I was laughing? I, I couldn't. I was uh, <laughs> purposely away from the mic. Uh, so that's that's what you know. What, what's cool about it is I plan on using this one um, for just, uh, for example, uh, one of my kids wants it in the room so they can have, use it as an alarm clock and to check the weather. So. Uh, what's nice about this one is it, it's cheap enough that it can be a little bit more pervasive than kind of the two hundred dollar one or one eighty. So, so I really like it and recommend it if if you want to try an Echo and you want to kind of get in for an under hundred dollar price point, I recommend the Dot. A uh, couple last news items before I want to kick it over to you to hear what you saw this week. Uh, one of the areas that's interesting that that I think kind of is. And I don't know if Hal mentioned this, but eBay has really kind of doubled back down on the individual consumer kind of cleaning their garage and selling stuff on eBay. At the same time, there's tons of startups that are really kind of innovating in this space. Sometimes they have a bit of a local kind of an element um, and then like an offer up uh, kind of chewing away at Craigslist. Uh, and then sometimes they have more of a vertical orientation. One of the ones I follow really closely is an ex-Ebayer who has a company called Poshmark. They raised $25 million, and I think they've already raised 50 so they're closing in on a $100 million raise. Uh, but that one seems to really resonate with consumers, and it's um, it's like a apparel consignment sales. So let's say you have a prom dress you used last year. You're not going to use it again. You can put it on Poshmark, uh, and then people will buy that from you. 
So it's it's a mobile kind of first kind of a solution. So very easy to take pictures of the products, very easy to post them. You has good social media tie-ins uh, and has done really well. And this lace round looks like a big win for those guys. Another investment that was really interesting in the marketplace world um, that I didn't see a ton of news on. There's um, there's a company called Rocket Internet, and I'm sure you're familiar with them. And what they do is they essentially kind of clone ideas very quickly. Uh, they kind of created a you know, fast follower factory, and they clone these ideas and, and just pump out companies like crazy. One of the ones that has done really well in marketplaces is Zalata. And what it is is kind of like Mercado Libre for South Asia. So it's one of these multi-country kind of semi-integrated marketplaces where you can kind of buy in a particular region or expand within a region if you want to. And there's all kinds of interesting things that have to happen for that to work. Uh, they primarily cover Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. And when you cluster those together, it's actually a pretty large uh, online network. Um, and the big news was Alibaba has made an investment to essentially uh, take a controlling interest in that company for over a billion dollars. So that was interesting and just kind of shows Alibaba's tentacles going deeper and deeper. Um, I have to imagine that Amazon would have been in the hunt for that and maybe even eBay. So uh, interesting to see. I, you know, like Alibaba. My guess would be that Alibaba paid up for that. Um, and then the last one is, uh, I can't go without some Amazon news. Uh, there's a very popular analyst called Gene Munster, and he's one of the axes, which is the, the leading um, analyst on both Apple and Amazon. And he does an interesting survey uh, that, that surveys teens and households. Uh, and there's a lot of other stuff that came out of this about millennials. But the highlight on Amazon was that uh, they now are showing when they take the surveys and they slice the data by household income, uh, the lowest level is 25K and then it goes all the way up in, in tiers up to 120K. What they found is, uh, number one, Amazon Prime is in about 50% of the households. And that jives with a couple other of these surveys that have been out there. But what was really fascinating was that it over-indexes on the high income. So folks that have a household income over 120K, 70% of those are Amazon Prime subscribers. So, so you know, it sounds looks like Amazon has really locked up probably the most lucrative segment of online shoppers uh, was one angle on this survey. The other one was when you look at some of the kind of the sub 75K thousand incomes, uh, Amazon is below 50%. So I view that, you know, Jet and Walmart spend a lot of time talking about, hey, it's still very early innings. Only 10% of sales are online. Uh, and it's interesting to kind of look at that by the demographics of household income. And I think there is a pretty big opportunity for Walmart and Jet there, but certainly Amazon's going to be going after that. And grocery seems to be one of the entry points all these guys are tackling to get into some of those households. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting, and we'll link to that in the show notes if anyone wants to dig deeper. As a frame of reference, the average Walmart shopper is about a 50K household income, so a very wide disparity. So it, it's almost like they're, the overlap between the two is we talk about them competing a lot, but they potentially aren't overlapping as much as we might all think. Absolutely. On my side of the fence, you know, I focused more on the tragic news, and nothing was more tragic this week than to hear that Victoria's Secret is going to be canceling their print catalog. I feel like that's a social icon that's going away and very sad to a lot of uh, t uh, future generations of teenage boys. But it also is interesting from a pure retail standpoint because there's a lot of controversy in retail about getting rid of those dead tree marketing vehicles, like both printed catalogs 
and the store circulars that that stores are are still heavily addicted to. And, you know, a lot of digital marketers come in and go, oh, my God, those are artifacts. And, you know, they don't make sense in the modern era. But when you look at the economics, most of them perform pretty well. And I know a couple of years ago, JCPenney tried to get rid of their catalog and they actually had to bring it back. Um, and there, you know, are still some longtime catalogers like Crate and Barrel that still put a lot of value in that that print piece. So it'll be super interesting to see um, one one of the world's most popular catalogs. You know, if they successfully transition that to a, a digital experience, or whether they, you know, have some remorse uh, about walking away from the catalogs. I did see a more obscure piece of news about Amazon. Uh, one of the agencies that specializes in helping sellers improve their digital shelf for Amazon broke some news that Amazon is working on a dedicated uh, store URL for subscribe and save products, potentially elevating the visibility of the uh, subscribe and save feature on Amazon. So both having a dedicated store and then, you know, having advertising links on the main site to that store uh, to try to get more people using subscribe and save. So uh, that, that will certainly be an interesting uh, evolution if that happens. Um, there were a couple articles about Amazon and grocery this week. So, you know, Bloomberg had a, uh, an article about, you know, how Amazon was likely to, to kill grocery. And then I know there was a Cowan analyst piece that essentially predicted that Amazon would be a top 10 grocer by 2019. You know, grocery is the new battleground at the moment. Like Amazon is certainly investing a lot in, in that. Um, they have a dedicated site in the markets where they sell grocery, this Amazon Fresh. And uh, we've heard that they're planning on moving that to the main Amazon site and so exposing that to more people and cross-selling the hard goods to the fresh products. So it's clearly very important to them and a lot of their competitors that very clearly is a huge initiative for Walmart. We've saw Kroger finally get in a digital with a buying line pickup in store space. So it's digital grocery is really nascent in the US, but it feels like the area that everyone is investing in. And so it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Changing pages for a second, a new story that I've had a lot of conversations about this week from inquiries from the media is that Staples announced a partnership with this company called WorkBar. WorkBar is a co-working space where, like, you know, if you're a, a small startup or you're a remote worker, you can essentially rent a desk or a workspace from WorkBar and work in one of these shared environments. And so this this new initiative is hey, Staples is converting some of the space in their stores into a co-working space that's hosted by WorkBar. And it's sort of a clever way for Staples to monetize some of that low-performing square footage in some of their stores and get more people you know, potentially working in that space that serendipitously might also be large consumers of office products uh, that they could buy from Staples. Yeah, that, that one didn't make sense to me because so so this is very popular and I'm sure in Chicago you've got a bazillion of these, but here in the Raleigh Durham area, you know, generally they are in office parks and they include office like perks, right? So you usually have a key code, you have twenty four seven access, you have um, 
you know, some nice free coffee and drinks and, and all that kind of stuff. And then they have some programming generally around, you know, uh, some lawyers will come in and have open office hours. There'll be talks about from other entrepreneurs and all kinds of stuff like that. And then you kind of try to jam that into a retail store that's been selected for traffic count in a busy corner and a strip mall and just doesn't really add up for me. I mean, um, the only thing that may make a little sense is it does seem like these workspaces generate, you know, they're exploding here and becoming quite popular. Um, so I can see that aspect, but then just kind of marrying it to retail doesn't make a ton of sense to me. The broader theme here is particularly big boxes that were built to win on assortment by having a bunch of products in the store have this new problem, right? Like they can no longer win on assortment. Amazon's got 400 million products or whatever. So, you know, nobody's impressed when they walk into Staples and see that there's an assortment of eight staplers anymore, right? And so those retailers are all moving to more curated assortments. And what that means is the box is too big and they have too much square footage. And so, you know, the magic question is, what do I do with this excess square footage? The easy things you try to do are you sell it to vendors in your store. You try to get someone to open a shop and shop. And so we've seen lots of Microsoft and Samsung and Apple shop and shops in retailers where essentially the retailers subleasing some of their space to one of their vendors, right? Like that, that's a super easy way to solve the problem as long as there's enough vendors that think that space is valuable. So then when that when you run out of those opportunities, then you go, well, who else is synergistic and wants to sell something to my traffic and is non-competitive with me, right? So if you could get a Starbucks or a coffee shop or something like that to open up a business inside of your store, that can potentially be really lucrative, right? And that's a you know a good way to monetize some of that excess space. Um, and those are all things that we've seen retailers do on and off for as long as retailers have have expanded and con- contracted their their square footage. When Circuit City was in business and they got out of the appliance business, those are all the tactics that they explored to to you know recover the value of that space that they used to use for refrigerators. So what's new here is plopping the workspace in there. And and my sense is Workbar is a good operator. Workbar have standalone spaces that have all those amenities you just mentioned. And my big problem with this is I just don't think it scales. The staples that most have a space problem, that most have too much space, are in those strip malls where the anchor tenant is a grocery store. And the reason they have a problem is all the affluent people moved out of that suburb back to the city center, right? So there just aren't a bunch of remote workers in that suburb that need a place to work. And if they do need a place to work, they want to be on the cool area of town near the restaurants and coffee shops and those kinds of things, not between um, the nail salon and the grocery store. Yeah. I am sure there are some staples in Boston where this partnership makes perfect sense and will do really well, but it just doesn't seem like plopping this into a thousand staples is likely to be a very good fit. So it just feels like it's gotten a lot of news for something that's probably a niche solution. It's definitely better than having Amazon lockers inside of the staples, which they did try for a while. <laughs> we did that. We one time we ordered a bunch of office supplies and had it delivered and walked right by and no one noticed. It was it was a fun joke, but it was not as ironic as it should have been. Yep, yep. Speaking of Amazon lockers, I saw an interesting headline uh, the other day and I'm assuming the headline was written by the the reporter and not something that the Best Buy was trying to sell. But the headline is Best Buy goes head to head with Amazon on same day delivery. 
And I read that and I'm like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Like some major new initiative from Best Buy. And what it really is, is they've hired this third party company to live to do same day delivery in a couple markets. That certainly doesn't feel like going head to head with Prime Now <laughs> for me um, necessarily. And I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that that's going to be a big solution for Best Buy. The economics of outsourcing this to companies like Delive are pretty rough. And, you know, so I haven't seen the execution yet. Obviously, Prime Now is essentially free to a bunch of Amazon shoppers. And usually people that use Delive because you have to pay Delive. Um, mostly the retailers charge a pretty significant premium for that same-day delivery. And in most of the tests I've seen, when retailers have a super premium price same-day delivery options, customers, you know, only a small niche of customers have any interest in that. Like, if anything, what's funny is when you offer expensive same-day delivery, it gets more people to opt into your less expensive two-day delivery than they used to because it kind of provides a higher-priced anchor for that two-day delivery. So I wasn't super excited about that. And uh, those were most of the news stories that I saw. Again, like we were pretty busy with all these shows. Yeah, yeah, it was quite a busy week. The good news is we've got a little bit of a quiet week next week. So um, some of the upcoming events on the 21st hours, like the earnings that come out. So the big earnings releases are right in front of us here. So on the 21st, Alphabet the artist previously known as Google, they have their earnings and that's kind of the first kind of you know view we'll get into how the first quarter went. Um, and then right on the heels of that, on the 26th, you have eBay and then two days later, Amazon. Um, the other thing kind of on the horizon is May 18th is Google IO and that's their version of F8, their big developer conference. And all the buzz this year is that they're working on some super secret um better than Google Cardboard kind of a uh, virtual reality device and that they may be showing something about that there. I'm sure there'll be a bunch of e-commerce news as well that we'll track. And that's all the upcoming events over the next couple of months. So kind of a crazy week for events, three overlapped on each other. Then we've got a little bit of a respite here, which will be good. So with that, that's probably all the time we have for this week. And as always, we love getting your feedback. So if you enjoyed this week's show, Please write us a review on iTunes. And until next week, we're wishing everyone a happy commercing. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 